Hello, everybody. It's Lenny Murphy back with the latest edition of the Green Book Podcast. Welcome, everybody, and especially to our guests today. So a little bit of background. I have known Ken and Elaine for quite some time, a few years. And over the last year or so, we have spent a lot of time together talking about the subject we are going to talk about today, which is all of the trends around mergers and acquisitions and capital formation and investment that's flowing into the insights and analytics industry. Ken and Elaine are experts in this because they work as partners within the investment bank, Oakland's De Silva Phillips. So, Ken and Elaine, welcome. Hi, Elaine. Nice to be with you. Yeah, ditto. Uh, it's great to spend this time with you. Thank you. You guys are always so kind, which is why I like spending time with <laughs> <Hopefully>. you. Yeah. <laughs> For our audience who don't know you so well, why don't we do quick backgrounds? Elaine, talk a little bit about yourself and how you got to your current role. Okay, perfect. Well, starting with my current role, I'm managing director with Oakland's De Silva and Phillips, which is a boutique investment bank focused on marketing and media. And my particular focus is the insights industry along and partnering with Ken. How I got here was kind of an interesting journey. I consider this basically the next logical chapter. I started my career on the client side. A lot of my career was with pharma. So I started on the client side to learn the finer points of how decisions are made, what information needs to go into decisions. I then moved to the best school for learning how to build information businesses, and that was IMS Health. Was there a number of years and had the ambition to lead my own company and had the opportunity to step in to lead a 25-year-old market research firm, which was kind of unique at the time. It was a panel business that serviced basic custom work as well as syndicated work. And so got a very good appreciation for how to make sure a firm is focused on its clients and creating value. Did that for a number of years, grew it from about 6 million to 80 million, a little bit of M&A, a lot of organic, and then stepped in as CEO for TNS Healthcare and brought together many companies across 20 countries and took that business from 100 to 200 million, largely organic with some M&A, did some consulting along the way to help firms figure out how to prepare themselves for growth and then for exit. And that then took me to ODP. Thank you, ma'am. Ken. Plenty like Elaine, I am a managing director at Oakland Sullivan Phillips, that boutique investment bank she spoke of. We, the bank has been around for 26 years. I've been with the bank now for 17. Like all of my fellow managing directors and partners at the firm, we all come to the bank from a career as an operator. We have either been entrepreneurs or C-level executives within larger companies. My own path was along the entrepreneurial side. I actually started my career on the, in editorial. I was the founding editor of a publication that became Information Week magazine. I left there to work as a technology analyst at Gardner, as it was called, Gardner Group back then. I joined when they only had 50 people and left when they had about 100 to start my own research and consulting firm, which I ran for about 10 years. It was very much along the Gardner business model of uh, retainer research and consulting. And our different focus was on more advanced technologies than Gardner was focused on at the time. So we were early leaders in artificial intelligence, computer-aided software design, imaging systems, and the like. And that eventually we sold the business back to Gardner Group since it was 
the same business model, but covering a more advanced set of technologies, as I said, it was a nice fit for them. And pretty much since then, I have been an investment banker at, at ODP. And that's me. All right. So of uh, those who don't know this, this is a general topic that has been near and dear to my heart, as well as an entrepreneur, starting up multiple companies, and then certainly through through Greenbook efforts like the Insight Innovation Competition at IEX. I have a, a passion for helping companies to grow. And even our spinoff sister company, Gen2 Advisors, is focused on that idea of how do we help companies grow? And as you said, Elaine, uh, scale and prepare for exit. The missing piece for me always was that really understanding <laughs> the minutiae and the process of, well, and a company's looking for funding, some type of partnership, or looking for an exit, just how complicated that whole thing is. Hence, investment bankers like ODP, who fulfilled that role. And of course, we've spent a lot of time privately talking about this pretty amazing year that just went past of 2021 that I think we would all agree was unprecedented in this industry, in the insights and analytics industry for the volume of deals and money flowing across the board both for venture capital as well as private equity. And you guys, I know, have seen these trends in other industries, this, this kind of natural life cycle that it seems like companies follow. So I would love to get your take on you know, looking at, let me not do a double barrel question. Let me think through the first one. From that, if I am correct in that idea that industries have a life cycle that we can look at from a capital market perspective, where do you see the insights and analytics industry being in that cycle? So, Ken, you want to take a stab at that first? If there's even an answer for it, I may be making it up. <laughs> I'm imagining something that's sure. not real. No, you're not imagining anything. But from our perspective, the insights industry itself is sort of a reborn version of what was the market research industry. And we really... I use the word reborn, use a, put a fancier twist on it, say it's a renaissance in this industry. The market research industry, of course, has been around for decades and decades. But if we look back over the last 10 years or so, perhaps a bit longer, and the transformation of what has been a very dull and dusty industry with not a lot of innovation has been turned on its head, both through the introduction of technologies, new approaches to the business, and as much as anything, simply new investment. And as we look at the overall insights industry right now, the industry has been completely taken over by a large set of new investors who have brought capital and people and innovation into what was that old dusty industry. And that renaissance is where we're in the midst of it right now. All of these large private equity firms and venture capital firms who've injected that funding into the industry have really turned the industry around. It's an exciting, in many cases, high growth industry right now that would have been hard to recognize, let's say just, as I say, 10, 10 15 years ago. Elaine? Do you uh, add to anything to that? Any other nuance? I think you know, 
You know, it's interesting you use the term life cycle. And I think about industries going through life cycle curves. And I think, you know, the past life cycle was very much focused around product. And as we talk about the industry, we talk about the industry now focused on the customer and customer experience and that customer experience in a much, much more complex and complicated environment. And so what it has done is resulted in the need to provide brand marketers with more insight into better customer understanding, better understanding of how they experience the various channels, et cetera, et cetera. So it's driven a need for a different kind of insight to understand the complexity. And so, as Ken said, that's fueling that need for new insights to understand the customer, to make decisions, to deliver the experience has resulted in more data, more analytics, more technology to automate the understanding of the data and the analytics. So we're in the next life cycle and that is being seen by private equity venture, private equity and you know, deep pocketed investors as an opportunity to transform this industry. And it's been you know, active for, I'm going to say probably a decade now. So the transformation is exciting and the transformation is on another level as well. You know, in the past, as I would think of private equity as an example, they were investors. They were financial sponsors. Now we see them as the next generation um, business builders. And you see, uh, you know, Vista Capital as an example is one that we focus on. And, you know, they created Numerator from two discrete companies. They had a vision of what the gap was in the marketplace and they created Numerator. Look at Material. Same thing. They're seeing an opportunity for the next generation, I'll call it modern marketing services firm. And they have thought very horizontally and created with the help of Tailwind, created the next generation modern marketing services firm. So it's fascinating, really, to watch how our industry has gone from being an input, so the insights, to starting to really inform the outputs being the drivers of value for customers and therefore revenue. And I think those are interesting examples. So when I think about this from my time of observing, that first wave, I would say, was based primarily on private equity and consolidation with the, and I mean, you were part of the TNS, right? So exactly. your private equity driving, buying up lots of smaller companies and creating a very large, often decentralized organizations that are very horizontally focused right, across the board. And I think we saw that from the early 2000s to post-recession. seems like that was the dominant trend, right? And it still kind of is going. But then at that same time as that was starting to gel a little bit, right? Some level of stability. Then here came the technology revolution. And we saw the explosion of DIY is what started that, the Survey Monkeys and Qualtrics and those companies of the world. And I remember vividly when the first public valuation came out for both SurveyMonkey and Qualtrics and everybody in the industry going, whoa, what? (laughs) Those companies are worth how much? And because they were massive valuations, they were Silicon Valley level valuations. And, And that seemed to set off a whole new era of where I think we absolutely are now of explosion around innovation and new companies that are technology-led versus service-led. And those are kind of the the two sides of the continuum. If I look at the industry as a whole, they anchor 
everything. And there's gradations in between of the spectrum. But primarily, that's it. And the interesting dynamic that I think we just witnessed is continuation of those technology-led companies getting the types of valuations that the our industry was not used to seeing happening, while the service-led companies continued to not necessarily get those type of valuations because the business models are different and you know it's, it, there's lots of reasons for that, but trying to look a little more like technology companies. So has that created a challenge within the industry as you talk to folks where everybody wants to be Everyone wants to be a Qualtrics or Medallia or a Survey Monkey, and they're wondering why are we not getting 10, 12, even more larger valuations? Well, yeah, let's, so let's talk about that first. I have two other questions. So, are you seeing that that everybody thinks, hey, my company should be worth this, and it's not? And there's a challenge with communicating that effectively. Well, look, this is nothing peculiar to what we'll call the insights industry. In every aspect of technology led, industries, there are those high flyers, which because of their size, because of their growth, because of their dominance of a particular marketplace, they have market-leading valuations. And of course, everybody else looks at them and for right or wrong, sees their own reflection in those companies and figures, geez, how come I'm not worth a billion dollars or $10 billion or $100 billion? And the fact is that in any given industry, there are only a handful of companies like that. In the insights industry, yeah, those companies that, like a Qualtrics, like a Medallia, or some others, who do have or did have really eye-popping valuations, are that way because they have the same profile as other you know, software-driven businesses in other industries. And that's not a reflection of the fact that they're in the insights industry. It's just a reflection of their business model and their success in making that business model sort of rocket along as they have. Now, what does that mean for the rest of the industry? Yes, certainly everybody wants to go around now and say that they are technology-led, that they have extraordinary revenue per employee, that they have the leverage that's going to let them scale like a Google or like an Adobe, like any other software-led business. The proof is in the pudding. If you show those characteristics, you'll be rewarded with those type of, as I say, nosebleed valuations. But for most companies, they're not going to get there. And as we've, I think, come to see in this industry that even companies that are on the surface seem to be real software-first companies. And if you look under the hood a little bit, you'll see some service there. And the companies that truly are the great success stories now and going forward are going to be some mix of both technology and service. And that's nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah, Elaine, let's follow up on that. Because I know you recently shared a report that you had found that I was kind of a benchmark report around SaaS valuations that I thought was pretty revelatory in terms of looking at that. So for our listeners, I've tried to do it in my head. I'm trying to think of a formula, right? How would you how would you develop a formula for valuation and say if you, you know, here's the simple multipliers and, and these variables? What does that look like 
for you? What do you tell your clients? Like, these are the things that you need to focus on. And here's roughly how they impact the valuation of your business. Well, you know, interesting, this benchmark study, it's the 12th annual benchmark study from KeyBank Capital. So it gave me confidence that I was looking at something that had credibility. And what I was surprised to see is the measures that were being used as benchmarks for SaaS companies are also the same kind of metrics that you use to manage any company and to be specific. The first thing I looked at in the way in which they organized the report is growth. So are you a low growth, mid-sized growth? Can you define growth? growth what, what do those ranges look like? So they're measuring annual recurring revenue is their point of reference. And the median growth is for 2021 is 36% growth in ARR revenue. So that is indicative of you know high growth, obviously a high growth company. The high end growth was considered 80 plus percent growth in uh, year on year. So that is certainly what you're seeing there is a business that's really gaining traction in the marketplace and might be equal to what a Qualtrics was seeing as growth. I don't think Qualtrics was at 80% a year, but they were certainly a high growth company. So growth is one. And the, as I said, the median is 36%. Then the next thing they look at is productivity. So what is the productivity, you know, ARR by employee count? And it's lower, as you might imagine, for the smaller companies. And then the mid-sized companies that are around 10 to 20 million in ARR are seeing something like 133,000 of revenue per employee. And then you go right up to the bigger players that are seeing almost double that. So that's another key measure. They consider the median company is around that 15 to $20 million ARR level. The next thing they look at is sales and marketing, as you might imagine, since you're driving the top line. And that's the next measure. And it's looked at as a percent of revenue. And the median company is investing about 35% of their revenue in sales and marketing. And then the next level is technology, keeping the, you know, the tech leading edge. So it's kind of like I always refer to Peter Drucker and the two basics of business are innovation and marketing. Well, it's the same drivers in SaaS as it is at traditional business. And so those are the metrics that are being measured. And when they summarize the kind of the profile of a company, they're looking at growth. They're looking at gross margin, which is around 75%. They're looking at sales and marketing as a percent of revenue. Tech is a percent of revenue. So those are the drivers of and the reference points for assessing a, a SaaS company. In terms of the multiples, again, it's based on size and growth. And so the median company that's just around that $20 million mark, growing at 35 or 36%, has a range of six to eight, or six to 10 rather, this is the full range. The median is eight times. The big players with the big growth are the ones that are seeing at the top end 15 times, at the bottom end 10 times. So it really is about size, growth, and productivity. So we're going to go into the weeds here, and I want to just digress this for a second for our listeners. This may seem like a kind of dry topic, but if you are an entrepreneur or you want to move into senior management within a company where there is equity involved or you're going to work for a startup, this is where the path leads, always. So it is about building value and, and understanding what that value is, because at some point, every person who starts a business exits that business, period, end of story. 
right? There will be some need for external capital. There will be some need for a sale, or you'll try and buy somebody else and you'll need funding to help buy somebody else. But this really is a foundational conversation, as odd as it may be, within the world of doing business. You know, this is the point. Now, that said, because I want to make sure everybody's kind of understanding why I think this is, is such a big deal. Can we talk a little bit about the differences between an EBITDA-based valuation versus a revenue-based valuation when those two different valuation models are used? Anything else that you would say that would be important to know about that? We're going back and forth, so Ken, you want to take first stab? Yeah, well, frankly, for many, many years, the notion of something other than EBITDA valuation didn't make a lot of sense. In fact, non-EBITDA valuations were a refuge for people who just didn't have any profits. So you would look for some- <laughs> Like startups. <laughs> right. You'd look for some other stick to measure them by. And for the most part, industry after, well, some particular industries have specific measurement tools to deal with uh, cash flows in the, in the broadcast industry and so on. But in the insights industry, or as Elaine and I more frequently refer to as the idea industry, because we do expand our notion of what is relevant to innovation to include areas like design and design thinking, the whole world of experiences, customer experience, employee experience, and the sort of burgeoning world, at least from the insights perspective, of activation. So we look across a pretty broad spectrum of markets and submarkets when we think about insights on one level. But so across all those industries, EBITDA, which is earnings before taxes for the most part, interest and depreciation, that is still the measuring stick. And over time, it's a multiple of how much EBITDA your company is generating that determines your valuation. And that number goes up and down as a function of how the public markets are doing, how people just feel about your particular industry. And there was a point in time where those sort of like on the gold standard, when exchange rates were fixed, there was a time when valuations were sort of fixed. When I first got into the media banking business, if somebody said they were selling a magazine, we'd say, all right, well, that's six times EBITDA. It really didn't matter what other variables there were. That's what the price was going to be. In the insights industry today, as I say, EBITDA is still the benchmark measurement. And the things that affect how many times EBITDA your business may be worth are going to be a function of some things I mentioned earlier, which are how fast is your company growing? How big is the company? How much cash are you generating? Uh, free cash are you generating? That's still the case. Now, we these days as well find ourselves in certain subsets of the insights industry talking about multiples of revenue which almost by definition is going to lead you to a higher overall valuation. Revenue multiples have crept into this industry because other industries such as enterprise SaaS software that fall outside of insights are measured by multiples of revenue because those companies generally are in very high growth mode. They are, they are going for market share. They are not focused on driving profits and or driving the bottom line. And as a result, we need another measuring stick. And because of the whole point of these low service businesses is driving K 
cash flow and driving scalability, we find that measuring by multiples of revenue makes sense. For companies that are SaaS-like in their profile and happen to be in the insights industry, these are recurring revenue, subscription businesses, highly scalable, low service levels, approaching those companies from as a multi and valuing those companies as a multiple of revenue does make sense. And you do see in the cases where it applies in the insights industry, multiples of valuations based on multiples of revenue are being used and companies, acquirers or investors are using that as the benchmark where it seems appropriate. We're going to pause for a second to thank our episode sponsor, Zappy. Zappy is the agile platform designed for creators. If you're part of a team that creates brands, ads, or innovative new products, and that includes insights, then you're a creator. With Zappy, you get access to actionable, quick, and smart data for creators to amplify your creative's effectiveness and shape winning innovation. Inspire your ideas and validate your creations so you can create something people love. Now, on a personal note, I have known Zappy since they were just a sparkle in the eye of the founder, Steve Phillips. Uh, they have gone from being just that idea to being one of the industry leaders in the world and of our, our industry. And I am particularly grateful for their contribution to this podcast and for uh, being just great examples of innovation in the research space. So check them out. Thanks. Now, Elaine, you know, recently we've had some conversations with some companies together. I've seen you take a very consultative role to basically play off what Ken just said and say, here's the model and here's where you are. Um, and, and here's some things that maybe you should consider doing. So thinking about kind of your experience and if the goal here for the early to mid stage companies in the industry that are moving towards some type of event, but haven't yet. Maybe they've taken an A round or they've got C capital, but you know they're not playing in the big leagues yet. And they want to get there. What would be your recommendation on the things that they really need to focus on now so they don't get out of hand and they get a surprise later on down the road and think, but wait, we're supposed to get 10X. I'm like, well, but you know, no, uh, <laughs> the numbers don't support that. No, and I'm not going to name names, but I will quote uh, CEO of a very, well-run SaaS business. And his advice is managed by the metrics. So it doesn't matter your size. You need to be managing to the metrics, meaning that you're focused on the actions to drive growth. You're being effective in how you're deploying your sales organization and your marketing, no matter your size, uh, that you're deploying your technology, all with the view of delivering value to customers. And if you're delivering value to your customers, you're driving the top line. You have to assume that the, the companies come into being because they saw a gap in the market and they're, they're working to address it. So I think it's being very, very disciplined about the fact that you're building a business and in building a business that is going to be valued, it needs to look a certain way. So you're using that always as your reference point of what rate am I growing? What's my revenue per employee, what's my sales and marketing as a percent of revenue, all with the view of and also taking rapid action. You don't have a lot of time to waste the limited funds that you have. So, you know, as a 
you know, managing a sales organization, making sure that the people that you've hired are performing. And if they aren't, then you need to be taking action rapidly so that your good money is creating value and building a high value business. And I think kind of added to that, this company that I'm referring to, they are managing to the metrics and they are being valued because they're rather unique. Their product may be a little less unique, but the whole of the business, its growth, its productivity is all coming together to make a unique asset in the marketplace. And so as a result is commanding a strong above average multiple. So I think it's all about making sure that you stand out from the crowd and you're thinking that way from minute one. And you know, what we often see in younger firms is that the founder is the innovator and doesn't have the experience in managing in a disciplined way. So if that's the case, bring in somebody who knows how to manage in a disciplined way. It might be your financial person, but somebody who's ensuring that the business is being very disciplined in how it deploys the limited resources yeah, that they have. Yeah, absolutely. And I can, for, for those listening, you know, as an entrepreneur, I got my start in my career more on the operations side, but that's not really who I am. I'm more the innovator idea type of guy. And I get bored really quickly with running a business. So I know from my own experience, it's been important to surround myself with key people that could run the business because I'm not temperamentally inclined or even particularly good at focusing on building the business for profitability. So I echo that from experience, you know, <laughs> being on the front lines, you need somebody that can do that. Just to add on to the direction Elaine was going in, I don't mean to leave the impression that your valuation as a company is merely a reflection of these standard metrics. There's so much more to what distinguishes a company and does ultimately allow it to gain a premium valuation or not, okay? And I mean, some of those things that are important, that are critically important, is seeing that a company's products or services are different. We want differentiated products that do stand out in the crowd that, are, that show some creativity and innovation. The technology component, of course, is very important, but it's not everything. And your company has got to be focused, just like a department store maybe, on the happiness of your customers, on the success of your customers. You want to show the marketplace that the work you do is outstanding, that it's exceptional, that you respond to changes in the marketplace quickly and you have developed a strong reputation, something sort of external to the industry overall, but that has been imposed on the industry is privacy. And you have to make sure that your products are completely privacy compliant these days, your services are. Otherwise, that can be a gut punch to any company. I don't care how good your technology is. All these things are, are important. You have a strong management group. You have strong leadership. Is there more than just one person in the company? Is there a team and behind them a second backup team that shows that the company is going to have legs over the longer term? You have a healthy culture at the company. Is it a place where people want to work, right? Is it a place that sort of cultivates outstanding thinking and retains great people? Do you have a situation where you have one or two or three clients who are accounting for the bulk of your business. And if that's the case, well, you want to diversify beyond just that group. And the clients you've got, are they companies whose names we all know? Are they more obscure companies? Hopefully, at least a mix. So, I mean, 
there's many, many aspects to a company gaining a top flight and high valuation than simply meeting the rule of 40 and making sure that you're growing at a certain pace and that your margins are above a certain number. And everybody knows this, I think, but in success at any level, it's hard to pull off, but those are the things you should be striving for and not just the standard calculations that you go after. Thanks, Ken. I think that, yeah, it's a composite. Yeah. I want to be conscious of time, and we know from experience that we three could talk about this for a really long time, but I don't know that our listeners' butts will uh, <laughs> stand that, right? So a long time ago, only talk as long as your audience's butts can absorb. So, uh, <laughs> so this has been fantastic, and I hope that the audience is really you know, listening to this as well, and I'll do a pitch. This is why I love Ken and Lane, ODP, because they're so thoughtful and so consultative in this that if you're looking for some type of transaction and you need a banker, I certainly encourage them. There's lots of great bankers out there, but this is why I like you guys so much. Now, that said, you're both too classy to do it, so I'll do it for you. So <laughs> Thank you, 2021, woo great year. You know, lots of deals happening, lots of deal flow, billions of dollars flowing in. Are we, you know, do we, does that have a long tail? I think we're still going to see, you know, more of that through 2022. My personal opinion is, who else is left? I mean, it seems like the population, you know, the available universe of companies that are really fundable seems to have shrunk quite a bit after 2021. But regardless of that, is there anything else happening that maybe indicates, uh, you know, the things may cool off or they may heat up? What's your read on so far in 2022? I'll start off. I mean, nothing happened on either December 31st or January 1st to indicate that the change of year has inhibited the growth in M&A activity across this industry. 2021 was a great year. 2022 has started off in the same way. I think we all make mistakes on thinking that we can predict the future just based on what has happened up to this point. And if there's something linear about it, there isn't. But so far, nothing has seriously undermined the state of activity across M&A activity across the industry. That being said, there's nothing that keeps this industry immune from the ups and downs that affect M&A across any other industry. And as a matter of fact, as the public markets have reacted to inflation and the prospect of rising interest rates and the always the potential out there of an overreaction on the part of the Fed that could throw the country into recession, you have seen that question, the markets have pulled back into correction territory over the last couple of months. And the private valuations have followed suit. So while there's still a lot of activity, there's still an enormous amount of activity, I should say, across all ends of the industry, both on big players and small. Nonetheless, valuations have receded a bit, whether they stay there or not is almost a month-to-month observation of whether inflation is going to stay where it is, whether it's going to climb, whether it's going to recede and prove to be a passing phenomena tied to the supply chain constraints and a short-term injection of money into the system as a result of trying to save the economy from the pandemic in 2020 and 21. We don't know. But I would say that in terms of level of activity right now, 
it remains very strong. And I think something to add to this is that what continues to be the case is quality wins. So, you know, what we were hearing from private equity firms as an example last fall is that there's so much deal flow. It was the cream that rose to the top and because they had their finite resources. And so they had to prioritize. And of course, as you might imagine, they were prioritizing based on the quality of the businesses, all of the things that, you know, can can articulate it. So I think it's preparing your business, making sure it's a quality business. And I think just earlier I spoke about you know, private equity companies becoming creators of new companies like Numerator, I use that as an example. I think there are opportunities for individual companies to come together to create new value and make themselves unique in the marketplace and get the attention of these investors. So I think there's a lot of different ways to come to market and all the while as a quality business. So, you know, I think that's something for us to be thinking about. So while there's been a lot of activity, I think there's still a lot of opportunity to create value. It just may not look like selling your own company. You may be pre-merging with somebody else, as an example, in order to create that kind of interest to investors and value to clients. Plain Legos, guys. So, yeah, every company is Lego block and we can do all types of cool things with them together. And for our listeners, this actually is something, uh, Ken Elaine, we play Legos together all the time in our heads. Cool. <laughs> what about, you know, a mashup you know, of these, this plus this, what does that look like? You know? Well, I mean, there are trends in the industry that lead you to believe that putting certain companies together and in the process, creating new capabilities will be welcomed by the industry, that there are gaps in what's available to customers out there that need to be filled. And one way to do that is through M&A. We can't wait for new startups to grow to a certain level of certain size to be able to serve the industry. So, but taking existing companies, mashing them up with other firms so that to create new capabilities is, we think, a great opportunity. I agreed. All right. So let's into the glide path now home. So is there anything that on this general topic that you want to make sure the audience hears that I didn't ask or we didn't cover? <laughs> hmm. Good question. Yeah, Greg taught me that. <laughs> it's the famous moderator question. Anything I should have asked that I didn't, right? It's the, uh... <laughs> yeah. like my interview question. Well, I think I'll use the life science industry as an example. This week, a division of Informa called Pharma Intelligence was sold to Warburg Pincus for 35 times EBITDA. Why? That kind of multiple for two reasons. One, it's a unique asset. The combination of their intelligence products formed a tremendous portfolio. So they had quality, they had uniqueness in terms of, the, as I said, the composite. And because they're information assets, there's an opportunity to help clients better predict the dynamics in the marketplace. So Warburg Pincus saw this as a data play that they could then enhance by bringing uh, more predictive assets to the table and taking advantage, one can imagine, of AI. So a unique asset being enhanced to add more value to what Ken was saying commands tremendous price. So I think really thinking about the end client and where are the gaps in the market is really important and how you might be able to enhance your own business or do a merger with another organization that fills a gap are ways to be thinking about you know, taking advantage of the money that's in the marketplace to invest and fill voids for clients. Ken? I'll sign on with that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Elaine, you're brilliant. So we all know it. 
Right. Riding your coattails. Right. All right. So last thing that we always like to end with something a little more personal. So what is your favorite content that you are absorbing right now? And use that any way you want, right? It's online, media, music, books, you know, whatever the case may be. So Ken, put you on the spot. What are you really into right now? It's something I've discovered just in the last, I don't know, two or three months is a podcast I love called Conversations with Tyler. Tyler, he's an economist at, trying to remember where now. I want to say uh, George Mason University. I think that's the case. And he is the best interviewer. I have to take anything away from you, Lenny. <laughs> he is the best interviewer I think I have ever heard. He asks the most succinct, tight questions, has on the most interesting people you've never heard of before, and and just lets them answer and doesn't never interrupts them, which I know is, and not that you do either, Lenny. You're, you're very good at that as well. But yeah, that's my current favorite podcast. And, I'd, and it's really just since the, the pandemic started that I've become a podcast listener at all. I've tasted quite a few, and this is, this is my favorite at the moment. Okay. Conversations with Tyler. And yeah, right with you. I was never a podcast listener or anything. And now I have quite a few that are always up in the background and I'll turn on and off in between meetings. And that's my background stuff. So right. yeah, I'm right there with you. Elaine. Oh, I'm boring. I'm really boring. I have had a fascination with the private equity industry for, oh, over a decade now. And just fascinated by the, you know, the returns that come from in exchange for growth. And I'm now even more fascinated looking at, as an example, the life science industry, that they pretty much own it <laughs> in terms, of, at least from the information, you know, the insights, data and analytics space. So just looking at the players and trying to figure out their strategies is a fascination to me. So as I said, a little boring, not, <laughs> not quite Tyler, but I certainly am fascinated by the plays that these companies are making and the new codes that they're creating. It's just fascinating. So I'm eager to watch, you know, I'm waiting for the next chapter, if you will, of private equity and life science. Maybe I should write the book. But anyway, that's uh, it, it's not not quite so exciting, but uh, certainly. There you go. No, I love that passion, right? Yeah. When we live, eat, eat, yes. breathe, <laughs> and other things, a topic, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know to. what? And, and actually, that you know, I'll, I'll wrap with this myself. There was a book that somebody recommended me when I was, gosh, I mean, I was like 20, right? In my first effort to be an entrepreneur, I opened up a coffee house in Augusta, Georgia, right? 20 years old, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. You got to sell a lot of coffee, make any money. I, you know, ended up sleeping on the floor and eventually it closed. No surprise. I didn't know what I was doing. But somebody had given me a book called Do What You Love, The Money Will Follow. Mm -hmm. Now, and it was a fantastic book. And I still believe that to the day. Now, I've learned since then, do what you love and do it well and learn how to do it well before you do it is probably the unspoken component of that. But I believe in that principle. And no, it's true. Guys, you've been wonderful guests. I appreciate your time so much. I am sure that you will come back at some point because I will make it so. And we will have additional conversations on this constantly evolving in space that we're in. Thank you so much. Thank you to our audience. Check back again soon for another edition. Thanks, Lenny. Look forward to the next conversation. Bye.